This is The Lat with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today, we're doing Gaslight, I'll Kick Us Off. There are many versions of Gaslight. First, there was a play which debuted in London in 1938. The play was adapted for an American audience in 1941 and for an Australian audience in 1958. Two films were made. The British made their version in 1940, and the Americans made theirs in 1944. Since it's a British play, and the British film more closely follows the original script, we watched the British film for this week's episode. It's been lovingly restored on YouTube, and it's free to watch. I'll link it in the description. Gaslight starts with a murder. A man murders a woman and ransacks her house, searching it for something which he never seems to find. It's a glorious old Victorian mansion, but after the murder, no one wants to buy it. It stays on the market for years, until a new couple moves in. The husband is on a mission to convince the wife that she's crazy. He hides objects and claims that she stole them. He goes upstairs and makes noise. When she asks about it, he claims she's hearing things. When he's upstairs, the gas lights downstairs dim a little. But even though her eyes and ears tell her that somebody's up there, the wife cannot believe her husband would deceive her. She's willing to believe that she might be mad because she's devoted to him. He, on the other hand, is not particularly devoted to her. The husband carries on an affair with the maid and plots to have his wife committed. Thankfully for her, she is saved by a detective. The detective recognizes the husband as the man who committed the murder at the start of the film. He is moved back into the house to continue searching for the very thing he failed to locate all those years ago. It's a set of rubies worth 20,000 pounds. In 1940, that was almost 900 grand. The film is set in the Victorian era. In one scene, we see a penny farthing suggesting it's set when those big-wheeled bicycles were popular, in around 1880. In 1880, 20,000 pounds was worth about 2 million in today's money. As it turns out, the rubies were inside a locket that the man had in his possession the whole time. They were in a secret compartment, and because he never examined the locket closely, he never found them. The locket contains the initials of the original homeowner, the woman who was murdered at the start of the film. The husband has tried to persuade his wife that she's insane so as to prevent her from discovering his true identity. He's humiliated her in public to discredit her in the eyes of the police. His tricks distract her when he's searching for the rubies. Ultimately, she is only able to escape his plot because the detective remembers the murderer's face and recognizes it. When people tell the detective that he must be mistaken, he holds his ground. Because he's firmly rooted in reality, he is able to save a woman from being wrongfully committed to an insane asylum. While the source material peaked in the 40s, gaslighting did not become a colloquial expression until the mid-2010s. Why did it take so long for the term to catch on? It's my observation that the term is only sometimes used faithfully. While it is sometimes used to describe instances in which one person denies the evidence of another's eyes and ears, suggesting the other person is making things up, it is also increasingly used in other situations. In the source material, gaslighting is associated with denying the truth for the purposes of undermining another person's confidence and sense of sanity. It can be proven that someone is gaslighting, insofar as the truth can be proven. The man is hiding things, 
and making sounds, and his activity is dimming the lights, and all of this can be established, factually, especially by a detective with the appropriate deductive attitude. But these days, gaslighting is sometimes used when we feel someone is disputing our perspective or our feelings. In these instances, they are not suggesting that we are hallucinating, that we are seeing or hearing things that aren't there. Instead, they are suggesting we are having an inappropriate or unreasonable emotional response to what we see or hear. It's not that we are hallucinating, it's that we have an unreasonable or irrational attitude. To put it another way, gaslighting is only sometimes used to speak of people who dispute the truth. Increasingly, it is used to speak of people who dispute my truth, your truth, his truth, her truth. In this way, it is used to treat the perspective of the individual as inviolate. Anyone who does not defer to our version of events, to the specific meanings we attach to what we see and hear, is delegitimizing our perspective and in this way undermining our claim on reasonableness and therefore on sanity. If we take the term this way, critiques of another's ideology become forms of gaslighting. Ideology constructs subjects as individuals. When we challenge someone's ideology, we challenge the way they have been constructed, the way in which they understand themselves as individuals. To do ideology critique, it is necessary to challenge my truth, your truth, his truth, and her truth. But if we naturalize the individual, if we say that my truth or your truth is the only kind of truth, because the individual is the only standpoint from which claims about truth may be made, then ideology critique becomes impossible. To challenge a person's ideology becomes an attack, not just on who they take themselves to be, but on who they really are. If the truth is that there is only my truth and your truth, then when I challenge your truth, I must be gaslighting you. This is not the gaslighting that we see in the film. It is an analogical use of gaslighting to liken ordinary forms of disagreement to the extraordinary forms of deception we see in the film. It is a postmodern appropriation of what was, in its original form, an incisive comment on how those in power dispute not just our perspectives, but the evidence of our eyes and ears. The husband in this film uses his position as a husband to dominate his wife. By getting her to think of herself as his wife, she is made to feel it is her duty to be deferential to him, such that even when he tells her things she knows to be false, she is inclined to trust him. At the end of the film, we find that even this is a lie in a very literal sense. The husband is a bigamist. He has been married before, and his other wife is still alive, making this new marriage a fraud. The husband is a bigamist and a cheater. He does not perform the role of a husband faithfully. Indeed, it is not even legal for him to occupy it. The first lie is the lie that he is rightfully her husband. It is the lie that enables all the other lies. In an analogical sense, the first lie of the boss is that he is rightfully your boss, and the first lie of the king is that he is rightfully your king. But in Gaslight, it is literally the case that the husband is not a husband. It is not just that he does not act like a husband, or that he does not perform the role of a husband well, or that he's a bad husband. He is literally a bigamist. Whether he is a husband or a good husband is not just something we can argue about. By law, he is an imposter. The gaslighting we see in this film is not something that is altogether common. There are some abusers who literally deny the evidence of our eyes and ears, taking advantage of our trust in them to get us to question basic facts. 
But most of the time when we feel gaslit, we are simply frustrated that someone else is refusing to defer to our perspective, that someone is arguing with us, that someone is scrutinizing the things we say. And we need that because we are all prone to ideological thinking. We all sometimes think in ways that are unreasonable or unduly influenced by powerful people and structures, and we need other people to challenge us when we go off the rails. When no one holds us to account, that's when we go down rabbit holes, and that's when we really go crazy. If we think that the people who hold us to account are gaslighting us, we are sure to lose our minds. All right, let's hear what Helen has to say. Great. Yeah, I wanted to talk about um, gaslighting in relation to the political economy and how this term is sort of, um, you know, it's, it's a complex kind of idea and also can be a complex symptom. And it, within this sort of idea, we can see the kind of ambival ambivalence of our own subjectivity and also the impact of the world in which we live on our subjectivity and the impact of that subjectivity on the world in which we live. So today it's interesting because... Um, uh, Julia Rishi actually wrote a, a good essay about this on um, for Sublation magazine recently. But there's a sort of idea that maybe we are gaslighting ourselves at the moment with these terms like, um, you know, in this film that the wife um, is made to feel mentally ill. Um, but today we sort of are made to feel mentally ill or um, want to be uh, seen to be mentally ill Um through sort of therapy culture. And that's not to say that there are like extreme and serious mental illnesses that cause a lot of suffering. And I know like Freddie DeBoer has written about this a lot. But the idea is that the symptom um, is in existence because it is more soothing than the cure, which it is being able to properly understand the material conditions, the political economy of the world in which we live. So it's more comforting to gaslight ourselves with the idea that we are, um, you know, have whatever newfangled phrase to do with our subjectivity or problems with it, that we're the problem, that we have a neurochemical problem or that we're maladapted. Or, and this is obviously to do with um, not only the fact that this is a symptom that helps us um, comfort ourselves that we can just sort of nudge things into betterment rather than facing the actual abject situation of the political economy. But also this relates to um, recognition and how in our society um, of the privatized quote unquote fake public, uh, we don't get recognition. And in this sort of um, ideology of, of harm and do no harm or whatever this master signifier is that's come to dominate things, um, being um, in that sort of more officially diagnosed uh, um, situation that, that um, garners empathy, that's something that is very, very tempting. And it's, and it's driven really by material conditions. Um, so this is why psycho well, psychoanalysis is antithetical to contemporary therapy culture, because psychoanalysis does what um, uh, Marx talks about in the... Um, introduction to the critique of Hegel's philosophy of right, which is um, to um, get us to cast our eyes from the fake flowers that decorate the chains, to take them off, to consider the train chains and work to break them in order to pick the living flower and the living flowers, you know, Freud's ordinary unhappiness. But therapy culture today, this sort of neoliberal, um, uh, let's say, capitalised upon, um, individualised, corporatised version of 
um, the study of subjectivity has just led to greater and greater fake flowers covering over the chains. But the trouble is the chains are um, horrible to consider. And often we don't have the um, subjective resources to do so. And, of, and often the chains are really that bad. You know, in, in this film, the main character is in a situation that um, is, is difficult because as a married woman, she has no power. And were she to uh, come to comprehend the conditions that have led to her gaslighting, would her life be any better? She may, may end up on the street. She may end up, you know, a maid or something like that. So sometimes we don't want to um, confront the conditions that have led to situations of abuse when, when we, and I'm going to come on to um, the subjectival implication in abuse and how it can be a symptom. Um, you know, sometimes there is no, no alternative, which is really, really sad. So, and it's interesting as well, I think, that psychoanalysis developed in the late Victorian period. And the symptom um, often was, you know, the hysteria that um, Freud identified was amongst these um, bourgeois um, families where there was a great deal of um, dissatisfaction and a, um, an inability to confront uh, the true dynamics at play that were leading to symptoms. And symptoms are a way... Um, they aren't necessarily the problem. They're an attempt at the cure, but in their toxicity, they become a problem. So when does gaslighting become a, a subjectival symptom and when is it just pure abuse? Well, often it is just pure abuse, but sometimes um, situations like gaslighting can, can go on for a long period of time because they happen to play into um, libidinal dynamics to do with an individual's form of uh, the way that they garner jouissance in their life. So jouissance is like the painful pleasure that we get um, in our attempt to uh, rationalize um, our place in the world in this very um, ambivalent, complex world. So um, we uh, say to ourselves, you know, we will have a particular right, a dynamic that if only it weren't for X or Y, then my life would be perfect. But this um, aspiration for perfection or this desire to, to attempt perfection in a situation that is not good for us, for example, current political economy, rather than doing the work of confronting the political economy, we, um, we gain uh, enjoyment, psychic enjoyment, believing we can enjoy the utopian world that we imagine is possible by saying, if only it wasn't for X, then it would be fine. So um, you sometimes see, for instance, and I see this kind of a lot um, in today's world, um, these ideas of sort of like extended illnesses that sometimes can afflict a person and sort of bad ideological kind of like weird woo-woo new age stuff would take psychoanalysis and say like, the reason why somebody is ill and they can't get over it is because, you know, they're thinking in the wrong way and they've got to manifest a good life or whatever. But what often happens is that somebody is much more ill than they realize, and they would rather sustain having an illness that they can't, don't and can't deal with because they can imagine that on the other side of the illness would be a life where they were a successful artist or a successful sports person or a wealthy person or what have you, rather than confront the actual uh, material conditions that have led to their dissatisfaction. And so often somebody is much more um, ill than they are able to realize, but if they were able to understand their illness, they might be able to take action to improve their situation. But this is not like a universal truth. Often you'll just 
ill because you're ill. But if you have, um, if it's to do with the subjectival symptom and if the suffering plays into something that you specifically are um, engaged in and sort of a, a jouissance dynamic, then these things can really stick. And so I guess I wanted to say that you can really um, see this um, painful pleasure um, that exists in some dynamics um, and why, you know, I think there is this common idea that abuse can be addictive. Um, and, and unfortunately, it's really not an easy solution because often abuse happens purely from a material standpoint where you have no other choice. And as, as Benjamin points out, there's many um, just within the society at large, there's many forms of abuse that we um, sort of have to suck up just for the basic functioning of society. But when it become, becomes a sort of very toxic symptom, when we are implicated on it, in it in a libidinal level, it sometimes can come down to our own um, form of enjoyment, our own symptom that we carry. We all have something. Um, around which we orientate ourselves um, to, to gain this painful pleasure, um, which can act as a buffer against um, understanding the true material reality of our lives. But what psychoanalysis will do is it will confront you with the logic of your own symptom, which will come out through the, the way you talk, the way you recount your life, or even you know the experience of having another seeing your life, it can be very obvious to those outside. And we can um, hopefully lessen the symptom by understanding how, for example, someone might um, have a sense that they are inadequate based on their own um, past primordial experiences as they're forming their you know, ego structure. And therefore, they can get caught up in situations where they their self-esteem um, is... Um, shown back to them in, uh, they, they are confirmed to be right in their enjoyment, you know, um, through, through this abusive structure. And they might imagine that if only, um, you know, this wasn't the case, there, there would be a world of abundance. But we have to kind of get to the point where we understand that utopias cannot exist in a dialectical universe um, to, to lower the stakes on these things. But all of this is not to say that um, every case of abuse is, has a libidinal implication, but often it does and often intractable um, situations do. All right, let's hear what Nina has to say. Yeah, I mean, not not too much to add actually to both um, Benjamin and Helen. In some ways, it was interesting to to finally watch one version of Gaslight actually after being gaslit by the term gaslighting for the past few years. As Benjamin notes, it's it you know kind of exploded in popularity uh, in the twenty tens and. Yeah, I mean, it's it's you know the, the the guy in the film is is a villain, right? Like he 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 lies about being married, he lies about his name, he lies about his motivation. He's his behaviour is obviously objectively um, horrendous. Uh, he's motivated purely by this lust for these for these rubies, um, and in that sense, uh, it's the distinction between reality and what he's doing is made very stark, right? Like he's very clearly uh, the bad guy. She's very clearly the victim. Um, I thought it was a very uh, moving film, actually, in many ways. It's a very beautifully restored version. The light was uh, fantastic in this in this film. Um, and I thought the, some of the most moving scenes were when she's pleading with him not to be cruel to her, actually. And I, I thought the way, the language that she used in order to sort of try to 
I suppose, remind him of his husbandly duties um, was was actually very beautiful in its kind of archaic nature. And I wonder if we would speak to each other in the same way now. And I think one of the interesting things about the, the take up of gaslighting in its more contemporary sense, which, as Benjamin says, and you know, uh, Helen too, is is it, it more simply means you disagree with my perception of reality. And because you disagree with it, then you're gaslighting me because you're challenging my reality. You know, and this is, this is intractable, right? So there's an article, the Julie Resch um, article, Psychoanalysis is Gaslighting, is very interesting, Helen mentioned, but there's also another recent piece by uh, Kathleen Stock, um, who has no doubt experienced her fair share of gaslighting. Um, she wrote for Unheard about gaslighting and about the wide, this kind of increasingly widespread usage of it. And she makes the point from a kind of more philosophical, argumentative point of view that, that a lot of the time, you know, when we're in a relationship or we're having a public disagreement, that that it's it's very it's very easy to say that the other person is gaslighting you. And I think we've all had this experience, particularly maybe within an intimate relationship, where someone says something that's maybe a bit off or a bit rude or a bit sarcastic, and the other person starts to question the tone but takes it very badly and then it becomes an argument not so much about the content but about the intention and the tone and you end up in these kind of back and forths about what was really meant it you know less than what was really said but there's this kind of you know intractable nature of of the positionality really like there's a there is a kind of some kind of disagreement it's not even necessarily about the thing that you're disagreeing but rather there's a, almost like a battle of of wills and it becomes this kind of fundamental fight for uh one's own perspective right and ho- and hopefully in a in a healthy relationship even where there is argument there there might be a, a sense in which you can understand where each person is coming from ideally right um or at least at some point later on you can say oh yes i can see why you're upset i'm sorry you know yes you're right i was being a bit thoughtless or whatever, you know, and, and, and we would have to say in relation to this film that none of that is gaslighting in the, in the strict sense of the, the kind of criminal intention that, you know, the deliberate desire to make somebody else, um, question not just a conversation, but the entire basis for their own reality. You know, there, there's clearly uh, an extreme degree of, um, manipulation uh, and evil you would say in the in the kind of the film version um but nevertheless you know you can see how that term has come back along with the use of darvo um the you know this idea of like um oh, what's the what's the first word in darvo <laughs> um you know oh god i can't remember but I it's, know, it's, I've, never, a... I've never like worked out what that okay. actually means yeah 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 so so what is it it's like uh I know it's like um reverse victim offender is the last bit. Um anyway, it's it's basically where you where you someone is being abused as it were. I mean, all of these terms this is also complicated because like terms like abuse, abuser, oppressor, trauma, victim are also 
kind of the currency of our era, right? Like, so, so it becomes very difficult to differentiate like the normal and the pathological. And I suppose the point I wanted to, to bring up, which is also to do with psychoanalysis and to do with mental illness, which I've been thinking about a lot lately, is how do we differentiate in, in a world of like kind of pluralistic, infinite perspectives where it's kind of a battle of wills and it's like, this is my reality. I feel like I'm X. I feel like I'm Y. You know, this kind of identitarian uh, sort of positioning. Uh, you know, Benjamin said, uh, my truth, your truth, our truth, you know, the, the kind of endless uh, truths, as it were, plural. Right. We have a problem, right? We have, we also have a problem with the kind of cultural diagnoses of people like Christopher Lash in the culture of narcissism, which is not to say that isn't of an extremely prescient and brilliant analysis. But when we start to say that an entire culture is X, we, it seems to me, lose the ability to be able to differentiate between, let's say, uh, normal narcissism and pathological narcissism, for example. At what point are we able to say that somebody is behaving in a pathological way if the entire culture itself is pathological, right? This is this is the problem. And like, we are in a pathological situation. And it's the very terms of pathology that have themselves become pathologized, right? So we're in a kind of infinite hall of mirror nightmare in which everybody is using these terms from mental health. And I think this is partly in the Resch, the Julie Resch essay, you know, that the, the entire culture, because of its therapeutic sort of ling- language, has itself kind of like become this monster, right? There's almost nothing outside of this language. So everyone is uh, being abused. Everyone's a victim. Everyone's being gaslit. Everyone, you know, blah, blah, blah. We, can, we can tell a story about all of our lives in this way. Which again, to, to agree with Helen, is not to say that there aren't serious incidences of mental illness, abuse and so on, right? But but the, the question would be, how on earth do we differentiate between a normal and a pathological case, especially if the very um, disciplines like psychoanalysis or, you know, let's, let's say the difference between therapy and psychoanalysis is that psychoanalysis has let's say, uh, a, a lack or a negativity at its very core, which is to say it doesn't provide you with any solutions whatsoever. Nevertheless, and I tried to write about this in an essay a few months ago about Freud and the future of psychoanalysis, it needs to have a normative dimension, right? It it cannot give up on, on for example, something like the difference, well, sexual difference, I would say, you, you know, there, there has to be some kind of normative basis upon which we then say, because if somebody turns up and they say, I feel like I'm X, right? And if you're no longer allowed to ask the question, why do you feel like you're X, right? Why do you feel like you're fat? Why do you feel like you're Napoleon? Why do you feel like you're the opposite sex, right? If nobody's allowed to ask that question because that those kinds of questions are now perhaps perceived as being unkind, cruel, non-affirming, and all of this kind of language, then the discipline no longer exists, right, as a practice, it can't do because because literally the why question is sort of at the heart of what it is, right? We have to be able to question people's own initial superficial interpretation of their own reality, right? So psychoanalysis is gaslighting, right? Structurally, it has to be because we have to be able to question the story that people are telling themselves when they are acting in a pathological manner. And of course, people volunteer to go to a psychoanalysis, Right. Or sometimes people don't have a choice when they have, they are forced into a, uh, I don't know, some form of, uh, mental health care. Right. Like sometimes people are sectioned. Sometimes people are, 
are in a very difficult place and they are hospitalized against their will and so on. Right. Even then we could say, is this not a form of gaslighting? Who's, who's deciding that this person is behaving in a way that is destructive? You know, oh, aren't we allowed to behave in a destructive manner? Why can't someone drink themselves to death? Why can't someone, you know, uh, be really, really clearly mentally ill? Aren't we being a bigot by, you know, you know, disputing their reality? So I think we're, we're really up against this. And I, I want to say that there's, you know, this question of the normal and the pathological at the ideological level. I think one of our duties, if you like, as people who are trying to think through, <laughs> reality, <laughs> insofar as we can still talk about reality, would be to identify those statements which actually form the core or those mantras that form the core of our current ideological situation. And the one that particularly comes to mind as, per as perhaps uh, uh, occupying the role of a form of mass gaslighting would be, amongst others, the, the phrase, be kind. I think this phrase is one of the most evil <laughs> phrases that the current regime in the year 2022 posits. It was all over the posters all over London during lockdown. It's on the T-shirts that little girls wear. You know, someone posted a thing where they took photographs of uh, children's clothes in various, uh, you know, shops, uh, um, high street shops. And so many of the ones for girls said be kind be kind you know it was it's very very strange because in a way who is that message for right like the little girl is wearing it on her t-shirt and other people are seeing it is the implication they should be kind to her is the implication that she should be kind it's very very confusing but there is this kind of you know absolutely dogmatic insistence that kind we have to be kind everybody has to be kind but we we know and we used to know and this relates to the the whole thing i'm saying about psychoanalysis the normal pathological sometimes to be kind you have to be incredibly cruel you have to stop people from doing the thing that they think they want to do because it's actually very destructive right and i know this very well as somebody who is engaged in addictive and destructive behavior right you hate the person who is telling you to stop that's why people don't want to do it because it's actually very difficult to get someone you care about to stop doing something that's hurting them this is why most people can't deal with it and they don't want to bother it's a form of um I don't know, I, I, how do you say it? Like quietism or like people want an easy life. You know, even to stand up to somebody that you care about very much and say what you're doing is bad. It's bad for you. It's bad for others. It's bad for society as a whole, right? You know, our entire culture has sort of given up on doing that in many, many cases, you know, which which is extremely, extremely destructive. And then you end up in situations like what's happening in Canada with this kind of voluntary euthanasia where people are saying, right, OK, well, you know, I can't fix my problems. No one's going to help me. You know, the state will kill me. I mean, it's very, very, very dark. So I'm going to end on this dark note. <laughs> Yeah, and it's true. It's interesting because I do think that like, and by the way, it's deny. Deny is the first word of Darvo. Oh, Yes. Yeah, so, so what is it? Deny. So, what's A? Let me look. I looked up on my phone. So, deny, attack, reverse victim, and offender. Oh yeah, that's it. But, um, but what I was going to say about that is that yeah. we end up in a Davo Davo situation yeah, yeah, where absolutely. both parties are like, you know, you're Davoing me, you're Davoing me. You know. But it's interesting that you know, like this is mirrored in in the way that politics has been slightly. You know, we no longer have like a dominant culture and a sort of like. It's no longer the empire and the rebels. It's like these, they're both, we have, we have the Democrat, the liberal and conservative operating in like almost two separate ideological worlds, but they, they are actually very similar. 
and you know each each you know darvo darvoing themselves whatever but i was going to say like i don't think it's random that this um harm ideology has you know this kindness do no harm ideology has developed and i think it is to do with um the abject well on the one hand the abject competitiveness of uh, quote unquote meritocracy and uh, neoliberal capitalism but on the other side it's to do with um the way that we cannot get recognition in the way in which um, the world is structured. And this is not only just to do with um, capitalism as such, but I, I honestly, I'm getting to the stage, you know, we talk about like, the brain expansion meme about social media. So I was on social media briefly at university and then I, I deleted it, Facebook or whatever, like quite quickly. And so the, fir- like, the, the first meme is like, it's like social media is a great way to connect with people online. The next one is like, Social media is really bad because it's, you know, bad and the sort of like you're showing off online and it's just bad. Then you then the next level is like, well, it's not actually that bad and it's not really to do with social media as such, but rather, you know, interpersonal ethics and like how you use social media. And then I'm like, the next tier on the meme is no, it's awful. And this is to do with intersubjectivity, recognition and the public-private dichotomy. And I really kind of come to this, and I think lots of people are kind of like feeling this way on social media now, that it's like precisely because of lockdown and so much interpersonal connection has been replaced by social media. And social media maybe isn't so bad when you use it a little bit, but you do not relate to the other in the same way on screen as you do in reality. And this is to do with the history of cinema, you know, transference, screen images. But it's also to do with the way that the public sphere, right, so social media is this like public, everybody can use it, has been privatized because every person becomes a commodity and a commodity is not a divided subject. And in order to have recognition, so recognition creates your ego. When you are a baby, you go through this process of developing an ego and it relies on the fact that the parents and the people who surround you are human beings who are not robots, who are divided subjects and the division and their lack of knowledge. Like for instance, like the baby cries, the mother comforts them, right? And the mother kind of indicates to the baby, you know, or you're hungry, eat or whatever. But it's not as simple as that. Like the mother doesn't also fucking know because the baby doesn't have words. And it is precisely the inability, the like imperfection of language that generates the solid ego. And the solid ego allows us to navigate adulthood and the, the modern world. Without this repeated exercise of having your ego solidified through the transferential relationship with the other that is then like, um, you know, undercut when we realize that the other is also lacking. So this is something I try to do in my films, actually, is like one of the key things I try to do in terms of desire and and the way it relates to capitalism. But like on social media, you can't do that. Everybody's a fucking celebrity and everybody appears to you like a whole and complete subject. And even though, yes, we might say, oh, no, but people are airing their dirty laundry in the public. It's like, no, this is a, a private choice to commoditize the act of confession or something to disguise privilege, to disguise surplus value and all this kind of stuff. Um, And like lack is only loss. It's not actually about like we are all lacking divided subjects. And in fact, sometimes a lacking divided subject might have loads of fucking money, for instance. It's it's all to do with loss and how hard done by you were. And if only you had this, then blah. This, you cannot get recognition from an undivided subject. And I think this really makes the ego unstable 
and leads to a, a form of regression amongst human subjects and a difficulty to navigate the adult world. And I think there is this sort of like desire to be to to be for, for special treatment and a need for special treatment because none of us feel up to the task because we are not. And as you say, I think both of you have said, you know, about about this idea of like recognition involves, I think Benjamin said this in your opening bit about like, you know, sometimes we need to be told when we're, we're not up to the task or we're doing something wrong. And this helps us navigate reality. And we're, we're turning into a bunch of like faux celebrity robots who cannot recognize each other. And we all feel like we're the only crazy lacking one. And often I think we feel crazy because we are presented with so many people who, who appear to be non-lacking subjects. And we think, well, we, there must be something wrong with me. But there's something wrong with everybody. And if there wasn't something wrong with all of us, we wouldn't even speak and we wouldn't think. Like there has to be something wrong in the first place. And that wrong is the lack that we all share. Um, and I, I do think that this, this is a fundamental problem. And I'm like having been like, oh, social media is just about the way you use it. And it's just like anything else, just like a technology. I actually think because it's not just a technology, it's a, a technology that represents subjectivity. It's fucking awful. I have a thought about pluralism. So I think that you could think about, you know, we have very deep pluralism. We have a lot of deep disagreement. Everybody agrees about that. And th there is a postmodern way to think about pluralism. And then there's another way. And I want to kind of, I want to give you two images, right? So one is the way a kid draws the sun. And another is the way a kid draws the night sky, right? When a kid draws the sun, you have a circle and you have a series of lines around the circle, right? And the lines all point in toward the circle. So if you think about pluralism, we may all be, you know, different rays, but we're all trying to think about the same thing, you know, whether it's how to be a good person or what's true. You know, we're all trying to get at the same thing, but from different places. So we're different from each other because we're all in different places. We're all in different bodies with different perspectives and different physical needs. But we're all thinking about the same thing. If there's some kind of, even if it's very thin, thing that we're all concerned with, even if it's just an abstract concept that has no clear meaning, the definition is unclear, that gives you something to work with. You know, like, for instance, I think in American politics, everybody's concerned with democracy. There are very different understandings in U.S. politics about what democracy means, what kind of democratic procedures there should be, so much so that from different points of view, one person's democracy looks like somebody else's authoritarianism. But everybody is concerned with the concept and with making something that they think realizes the potential in that concept. Uh, you know, in Max Weber's political theory, you can have a huge diversity of convictions. You can have lots of different values, provided everybody's mature in the sense that everybody understands that the stability of the social order has to be prioritized over those convictions when they come into conflict with it. From a very different point of view, you know, for Gandhi, there are many paths, but one truth. You know, you can uh, come at at, at the truth from many different directions. And if we all do uh, satyagraha, if we all show the force of the truth to one another, we can all be made to see the things that other people from their other standpoints are able to spot that we're not able to spot. Conversely, a kid's drawing of the night sky is just a bunch of dots. 
a bunch of dots that have nothing obviously to do with one another. And if pluralism is a bunch of dots, then there's no way of operating collectively. There's no way of, of saying that the dots are part of a common project that relates to one another. The dots are all just pulling and pushing at each other, as stars do with their gravitational pulls, pulling and pushing at each other. And there's no uh, basis for even trying to bring people together for anything common or collective. Why would you even bother? Uh, and I think that the kind of Nietzschean strand, as opposed to the Weberian strand, the Nietzschean strand is very night sky. Uh, Hannah Arendt is very night sky. She, you know, supposes that uh, we ought to be peaceful and nonviolent with one another, but there's no particular reason for that in her schema. There's no, uh, you know, value that would cause us to to think that we ought to. Uh, in you know the Weber kind of Gandhi side of it, you have the the sun with the rays. And I think that the, the battle over what to do with kind of post-Catholic deep pluralism in the West, it's a battle between the kids' drawing of the sun and the kids' drawing of the night sky. And I wouldn't say it's a battle between modernism and postmodernism because Gandhi's not a, a modernist. Yeah, it's very, that's very interesting, Benjamin. I want to extend your metaphor slightly or, or maybe complicate it a little bit because, um, and, uh, but I think it relates to what Helen's saying about social media and everyone's a star, right? <laughs> Literally, like the idea of the, the complete whole, the, the, you know, the, the quest for celebrity. And I, I think this also explains why people are so mean to each other because, you know, if, if everybody acts as if the other person is complete and they know what they're doing and, oh, I've got an insight into what this person really is and I think this person is really a fascist or whatever then you like you know you you have a, a fixed idea of them right whereas pretty much everyone most of the time well everyone most of the time doesn't necessarily know what they're thinking you know they might have lots of contradictory feelings N no one is has a complete set of philosophical or political positions right so but it is true that we, we're treated like stars but in a negative sense actually like everyone treats each other and, and I think the metaphor works really well, except Benjamin, when a child draws the night sky, they also draw the moon. And I really wonder what role for the moon. Seriously, I, I, I did the drawings as you were speaking and I did them as a, a child would. So I did the sun in the, you know, the circle, the rays. I agree. I love drawing the sun. Obviously, I'm very solar. But the, the, the night sky that the child draws also has a moon, whether it's a crescent moon or a round moon. And I, I'm wondering what role for the moon you know, the moon, the moon gets its reflection from the sun. We see the moon. Uh, it's, it's often present in the day. It's a very, very, I don't, I never really know what to do with the moon. I don't feel very lunar, even though it's a kind of female feminine symbol. <laughs> yeah, so my friend is really into like, um, tarot cards and all this kind of shit. And she's always talking about <laughs> lunar people and solar people. Yeah. Is that a I thing? Mean, I mean, I, I sort of agree with that. I, mm -hmm. I think there are lunar people and solar people. The moon dominates the night sky visually, even though in point of fact, it's much smaller than most of the things you can see. So I think the moon yeah. is, is Donald Trump. What? <laughs> no. And if we're talking about social media, the moon is the thing that dominates the, you know, but even though it's not really, 
very <laughs> significant compared to most of what you see. It's the thing that everybody is looking at and has to be in everybody's drawing, whether they like it or not. Even though if you go there, it has no atmosphere and it's a bunch of dust and there's yeah, nothing but, really uh, useful on it. <laughs> in our psychic model, like maybe the moon is, is also like, I don't know, like our, our shadow. It's it's the ego, maybe. I don't know. It's, it's paradoxical because I, I get your point about the sun and, and everybody's basically looking for the truth or everyone is committed to the good or, you know, they're just different ways of approaching the same thing. And uh, yeah, this is one of the problems when we don't have uh, any agreement on what we're doing, right? When when pluralism becomes just fragmentation and there is no kind of social cohesion whatsoever, um, there is no commitment to reality. Everybody has their own reality. And I, I remember a few years ago, like I often use the second person when I'm writing, like we, we believe, we think this. And there was a point at which people... So there was some memo came down from somewhere from from ideology and it was like you can't use we anymore yeah the first person plural yeah yeah I, I hate that i like we yeah i use it way too much to be honest but but it's like uh the idea was oh no you can't you're speaking on behalf of others if you use who's we so you'd always get this annoying comment at, at, at sort of conferences where people would be like who's we you know i'm not part of your we <laughs> And that kind of thing, you know? Everybody thinks they're so special. But if it's we're funny. all trying to get it, you know, if we're, if we're doing the sun, then we're all trying to get at something, whether we yes, know it or not. So there's always a we because all the rays are rays of the sun. So there's always a we if you're doing the sun. Yeah, exactly. But this is this is the, you know, the exit from Plato's cave, right? The sun is not a metaphor. It's mm -hmm. the actual sun. Right. But if it's <laughs> a bunch of stars, you know, then it's just about. I'm trying to suck you into my thing. Everybody's got you yeah. know, their gravitational pull. I'm trying to suck you into myself and I don't care about you. <laughs> Everyone's a black hole. <laughs> when you're talking about um, the like the truth and there is the sun is not a metaphor, right? So I do think this is a lot like with psychoanalysis that people, as you say, like people go in thinking their life's going to improve. And like, for instance, their symptom will go away just like that. But actually it's a much more complex process, which involves an, a, like a fact that often it isn't just a metaphor, it is real. So like, for instance, um, one thing that happens often, and I use this example of, of ill people. And one of the ways in which ill people get gaslit is to do with the failure of the healthcare system. And so many people have illnesses that aren't, say, um, one of the the big three or are, un are unknown. You know, like uh, haven't haven't received um, enough study, or you know um, that that in previous generations you would have just died from. And what happens often is that the person is told when they can't work out when it's not work worked outable, it's in your head. And this does often turn people, especially if they have the propensity to it, to thinking that they're the problem is ma madness and they are mad, and that actually. But psychoanalysis in this situation would help you understand that it's it's not it's not a metaphor. Like it's like so. I think some people think that psychoanalysis is like you know because um, Gabor Mate is an interesting one because I I do respect his work, but I think he doesn't really have like a full psychoanalytic picture and like a full understanding of like subjectivity or whatever. But like you know that the body just protests and says says no, and that might be the case. But also there's you know the saying no might be done in a way that isn't just metaphorical and is actually connected to reality. So I don't know why I was saying this, but it's just what you said about the sun isn't a metaphor. Like, I think that, and this is to do with the we, right? That like often it's, we, we want to sort of negate reality 
we want to negate the existence of other people. And we have kind of like how therapy culture has 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 become ideology, an ideology being sort of a negation in a way of reality, precisely because it it explicates our individuality. But actually, beyond ideology is all of us in reality. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, Benjamin, you're right to correct me. I said second person. I meant first person plural, didn't I? This yeah, is this did. is a this is a this is a uh, 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 hangover from a very bad comprehensive school Can education, which you would never talk about. What is amazing is like so. Um, I should I should have learned it properly. No, but, yeah. but like I knew so many people who were like brilliant philosophers or whatever, um, a really <laughs> successful published loads of books, but who had a really shit comprehensive yeah. education and don't know anything about like the whole profession is the written word and they're able to write amazingly but if you ask like what an apostrophe is or the rules of apostrophes they wouldn't know and it's just i mean it's a I, real like it's, it just shows up the whole fucking education system right you know like no for sure and i think there's sort of two ways of learning how to write and one of which is more formal i'm not saying one is better than the other by the way and i wish i'd had had a better education but i think um you know one is is more formally and the other is more like osmotically right mm-hmm. so if you read a lot then you sort of learn how to write but in it it's, it's much more like autodidactic sort of yeah. way yeah so uh, so i yeah i really do struggle even though i tried to learn medieval latin and, and other languages which do help you try to understand grammar um i i it, it because i think it didn't go in at the right time that i i haven't got those structures same for for bits of maths as well even though i was quite good at maths up until a certain point anyway I, this isn't a, a complaint uh but more an observation i think i think these are you know but there is something maybe profound to say about the class system and forms of education that promote certain kinds of learning over others and and the effect that that that, that actually has in how you conceive of the universe you know they they do have profound implications like whether you know how how grammar features <laughs> but, but the they they have they do have a profound but there is a beyond of Alan you're muted I'm muted I'm muted I am muted myself <laughs> um I was saying they do have a profound implication but there is a beyond of it so Actually, it was interesting because um, I think about doing like an extended piece on um, just something I've been thinking about a long time about like how psychoanalysis is, I would argue and others argue, is like r- wrongly understood in relation to film theory and how it became mm-hmm. um, particularized through um, poor scholarship, basically, that did not refer back to Lacan, even though it used Lacan as its primary kind of like use the, the discourse of the the the, the, the language of like the words or whatever um but there is you know precisely like beyond say like the gendered issues that are, that, are, that are talked about a lot in um in psychoanalytic film theory like actually the, the beyond of that is a universal that there is there is a there is a like a there there beyond this like um embodied uh implications of let's say um dynamics within society and that psychoanalysis gets us to what that thing is yeah the sun <laughs> yeah i i don't know i mean like to go back to the the sun i mean it's like i if it there, there has to be an outside of society as it were right like there has to be something a ground upon which everything else is grounded, you know, and it used to be maybe religion, like the Christian worldview or something like this. And, um, and now we're sort of grounded on ourselves, which is why everyone's gone mad, which is, it's, I don't know, just to repeat some of the points I was making before, it's like, you know, if all we have is our own experience and our own feeling, and then the language we're using to describe those 
those feelings and it's a kind of you know that it's pathos right so so like i was saying it's like everything is pathological literally because all we have is feeling you know and then everyone is just sort of competing about their feelings but the problem is if nobody cares about your feelings this is a recognition point i suppose it's like there's no commit there's no commitment to anyone else's feeling right unless you have a structure in which something like marriage makes sense in which you are you know and this goes back to the film you know under under non-false pretenses you literally say i'm committing my life till death to this other person right and there'll there'll be a contract and there'll be a recognition by the state by this piece of paper so that there will be a third there will be a third part of our relationship which is our relationship with each other the two people but also our relationship to this third thing which is the contract or god or whatever however you want to structure marriage but this is actually quite effective model right the triangle also in times of difficulty you say okay well i'm having a bad time with this person or we're having a rough patch but we're both committed to this third thing which is actually kind of silent you know so and and for the sake of this third thing and of course it could be a child as well i you know but i'm just saying like let's say the marriage without without children you know, it's you have something else actually to to sustain you, right? Yeah, and this absolutely. seems to me the structural function. I mean, maybe it's really obvious, no, but, but yeah, but this does relate when, to precarity as well and like yeah. material conditions and stuff. And like, it basically, you were saying that okay, you also, you know, like the the, the rule, like the way free speech works. It's like you have free speech, but because of the dialectical nature of reality, that falls into. There, there is, uh, there are things that can be excluded from that, like, for instance, defamation. But like with marriage, there is an out, which is divorce. But in divorce, there are rules in place whereby if one person has much more, many more resources than the other and the other would lose, you know, would be on the street mm-hmm. or lose their standard of living, there, there's, there are legal protections. And this is why it's really important. And, you know, also it's, it's to do with the fact that you're, understanding that in capitalism um everything has has a value except love and um and that basically at a certain point a person might be hit by a bus and need round the clock care or whatever and you're making a commitment mm-hmm. that despite these things that lesser someone's value in the abject horror that is the capitalist market you mm-hmm. are making this commitment did you guys see that that tweet that went really viral like a few weeks ago where somebody was saying, how about instead of till death do us part, like till both of us, till till marriage no longer sparks joy. And it's like, what you've described Ugh. is like a relation, <laughs> like a relationship that isn't marriage. And it's like, are we going to like yeah. destroy absolutely everything? See if I can find it. Cause it was like really. No, I, I did see that. Um, yeah. I mean, but it's completely coterminous with the, you know, precarity, mm. the sort mm. of app, the app based. Oh, maybe there's someone better, you know, no commitment. Why should I bother? Like, well, what the yeah, thing that stands out to me there is that that person still wants the concept of marriage to describe their thing. So there's <laughs> yeah. a kind of valor that is associated with the concept of marriage that that person wants to steal without having to actually subordinate yeah, that, their yeah. relationship mm-hmm. to the concept. So she wants the credit for the concept without actually having to do the thing that the concept describes. This is yeah. the thing that's really shocking with contemporary ideology that like this reification of um, like and, and misunderstood. It's one, one side of the dialectic of desire that basically um, like I would say I would agree. Yes, that desire is the most for- formidable force in the universe. Um, and that, you know, it's something that we need to revolve around and foreground in our lives, but it's dialectical. It's not like, because 
of the nature of, of the dialectical nature of the universe and the lacking universe, we will never get what we design. If we did, we'd be disappointed. And, you know, Lacan talks about this a lot or whatever. But this sort of like go after your desire without any of the other side of the dialectic, which is like, you know, as in the only thing that makes things valuable are the difficulties related to that desire. So you want to incorporate them. You want to subordinate your desires to other things. Otherwise, you're in for melancholy and like utter, utter horrific nothingness. And this is why it's so important to have like interpersonal connections with other people in that like we are not, you know, this is like, this is the pure ideology of like, you're desiring, desire, like, and, and it's a complete misunderstanding of psychoanalysis that like, just go after what you desire. It's like, no, go after what you desire with limitations and the limitations are the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And basically the real end of history in like Hegel towards Lacan is like recognizing how your desire functions, continue enjoying, but enjoy the obstacles to that enjoyment. And then you get um, a good infinite that's like sort of cyclical rather than this bad infinite towards like death death, death and destruction that capitalism yeah. is. And like, it is shocking to me how much critical theory has like a, a misunderstanding of psychoanalysis is like put forward the one side of this dialectic, which is just neoliberal, you know, making us all miserable, not recognizing the lacking other, because basically what starts to happen when you are really tapped into this ideology is you believe like, I'm not getting what I want. And that's the exception. Mm. And on social media, everybody else has what they want. And it's like, no, nobody has what they want. And that's the unifying factor. But this is why capitalism is a death cult. Mm. Like it literally wants you to kill yourself because it's like if you if it stresses your desire in the kind of uh, one sided sense, it's like if everybody does what they want, quote unquote, they'll kill themselves. Right. This is what it means. It's like um, how, how to put it. No, yeah. The you ultimate, know, like- the ultimate um, self. Basically, this form of desire, this misguided, like ideological death drive desire requires um, self-sabotage and the ultimate yeah. response to melancholy, which is getting what you want and then realizing that nothing is making you happy is suicide. And, yeah. um, you know, often it's, it's the last attempt to get recognition. And the thing is, this is again, like this all, play, I mean, it's a kind of a complex like web of ideas, but it does all play into the privatized public today. And this image that we have of everybody getting what they want. Mm. And the fact that I don't have what I want. And but this in believing that everybody has what they want, they are uncastrated, undivided others who cannot recognize ourselves, like cannot recognize us. And then we get a more and more destabilized ego. It's like it's so important to have this intersubjectival, interpersonal understanding of the lacking other that can only really be achieved through getting to know somebody. Yeah. Uh, nobody has to enslave you if you're already a slave to desire. Yeah, if you're exactly. already a slave to your own desire, uh, then whatever desire it is that you've been encouraged to have uh, will run your life in a way that's very predictable that makes it very easy for you to be controlled. It's true. You know, I mean, like the demonic part of me would like 40 bottles of red wine, right? I mean, I can get what I want, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it would it sort of would destroy me and everyone I care about and my life, you know, if I if I got what I want, quote unquote, right? So like the negative part of me, and I think this is like, you know, I've said this before, but like the older you get, the more you come to understand your own limitations in like a really depressing way, because they're always the same. Right. And you're like, oh, shit, <laughs> like this is who I am. <laughs> so capitalism encourages you to identify with whatever bodily desires yeah. you have. 
And in that way, it encourages you to enslave yourself to those desires. But in doing that, think that that's realizing your freedom. Yeah. And in that sense... No, it's horrendous. It's horrendous because this stuff is everywhere. Like, I, I don't know how, you know, how do people not do what they want in this negative sense? Like, it's, it's, it's horrendous. You're I mean, free to you go can... buy the crap that you want. But yeah. to sustain and, desire. And you're living your whole life to buy the crap. But this and, is, this yeah. is, this, this is death drive. Like, desire <laughs> yeah, and healthy desire and sustaining desire is to not have. And at a certain point, you have to enjoy your enjoyment, which is maybe for, for you not having the alcohol. That becomes the thing that's the, like the limitation is productive. But anyway, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's... No, but you yeah. have to have this whole other life, which is based on not doing this thing that the, the bad yeah, part of you wants to do. But it's the more, and also the more intense, the more alienated we are from reality, the more the pro- ideology of promise has hold on us, the more we don't want to face the normal reality and the more we want to tie no, ourselves. Totally. Just, yeah, it's... it's because there yeah. is a horrible truth in like, you know, at least temporarily, the thing that you think you want does actually succeed in making you not think about everything else. You yeah, know, it succeeds in not like in a... fulfilling you, but in distracting you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yep. we're at an hour. <laughs> yep. And since we're at an hour, we're going to go do the B side. We've talked a little bit about maybe talking about effective altruism on the B side. So maybe we're going to do that unless somebody's had any bright ideas. While we've been recording. So if you're interested in hearing what we think about that, uh, do do uh, follow us on Patreon. But uh, regardless of what um, you're going to do with the rest of your day. Oh, Helen, you have something? I do. Um, Benjamin has a lecture with GCAS starting on uh, Sunday. The Hang on, I'm on the wrong month of my thing. On my Sunday, Sunday oh, the nice. 20th. So come. What's it about? Oh, yeah. I'm doing a series of lectures for GCAS about legitimacy and about some of the concepts that liberal states like to use to uh, legitimate themselves. Liberal democracies like liberty, equality, representation. Yeah, I'm doing that every Sunday starting from the the 20th. I I don't know if we'll get this episode out before the 20th. They can can also get uh, the recordings. Yeah, you you can get the recordings and I'll I'll be doing it 27th, 4th and... uh, and the 11th. And basically cool. what we're doing is we're doing like a free model, but if you would like to donate, that's the way we're doing it. So if you would like to attend and you can attend for free, but if you, and I know nobody has any spare money, but if you happen to and you want to see more <laughs> of these courses, then blah, blah, blah. I think there's a button on the website, but anyway. Well, thanks for promoting me, Helen. So I don't okay. have to do it myself. I feel much better <laughs> since I didn't have to do it. <laughs> All right, we're going to go to the B-side. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye.